I just want to introduce our speaker here really briefly. We have our brother, Joel Richardson, with us. Um, I'm sure many of us know him. He is an, an author, a, a speaker, um, has made many documentaries, um, and is laboring among our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. And so we are so excited to hear the word that the Lord has put on your heart today, Joel. Um, and I just want to pass it over to you for this next hour. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, it's good to be on with you all. So I assume that um, many of you are to some degree or another engaged with um, the fast, obviously, for Israel um, coming up to the tail end of it. And I know a lot of people are tired <laughs> and so forth. But um, I'm actually going to be teaching at IHOP uh, tomorrow at their School of Messengers. So in a sense, some of the things that I'm about to share are kind of a um, I, I guess this is kind of a warm up session for me uh, for tomorrow. But rather than teaching, um, I, I sort of want to just we're going to look at some scripture, but I just want to share my heart and just share some things that have been on my heart as I've been uh, thinking about the task, the monumental task of what the Lord has called us to do in terms of reaching the Jewish people. And <clears throat> there's a degree to where sometimes I look at, um, I look at the, the rhetoric that we, that we give versus what we're actually doing. And sometimes I feel an incredible sense of impotence um, on behalf of the church, uh, you know, and it and it really causes me to say, Lord, if you don't do this, uh, you know, like you have to do this because we can't do it. It's um, it's it's way bigger than most Christians realize. Um, we tend to be very optimistic, and but at times, often. Um, fairly idealistic, if not even a little bit ignorant concerning what it is that we we think we're going to do. So I'm just going to start out by saying that um, I love the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, I think it's a fantastic movie that every Christian should watch. And it really actually helps. Um, it helps Christians to understand a lot of little nuanced, subtle cultural things with regard to the Jewish people. But I love the main character, Tevya, who's throughout the film, you know, he's talking to the Lord and he just has a very, um, uh, just a very real relationship with God. You know, he's just talking to the Lord, but he often will say, you know, he'll say like on one hand, you know, he's, he's talking about um, this guy that wants to marry his daughter. And he says, on one hand, He's just a like a seamstress, you know, like he's got a sewing machine. Like, can he really provide for my daughter? You know, he's like, I don't know. And he goes, but on the other hand, he's a good man. And he'll say, but on the other hand, you know, and he's, he's constantly doing this on one hand, on, on the other hand. And in many ways, first of all, let me just say I identify with Tevye very much because I'm I'm constantly seeing the nuanced realities of, of a lot of different issues, but it also very much captures 
the um, I'll just say the Jewish mind, and not that that's something that can be simplified. But I mean, if you study Talmud, if you read Talmud, it's often multiple different individuals or rabbis who are discussing various aspects of some particular uh, debate or passage. And oftentimes we in the West, we go, well, which one was right? You know, that's the mentality. Which one of the rabbis had it right and which one was wrong? Um, but from a Talmudic perspective, it doesn't always land there. It sometimes it's just like, no, these are all just valid perspectives. They might be four different perspectives, but they're all valid. One might have more weight um, than some of the other perspectives. And so this is, in a lot of ways, what we're dealing with when it comes to, uh, again, the call of the church or the call of believers, both Messianic Jews as well as uh, Gentile believers, to reach the Jewish people. It's an incredibly incredibly nuanced reality that very few Gentile Christians in particular really grasp. There's so much history. There's so much pain. There's so much uh, practical history. There's so much theological history that um, we often are, are ignorant of. So I actually want to begin by uh, looking at uh, Deuteronomy 32. <clears throat> so Deuteronomy 32 is one of the most important foundational prophetic texts in the entire Bible. Um, so often when you read the prophets, you can actually find uh, little connections, little grammatical connections, um, all sorts of allusions back to Deuteronomy 32. It's a foundational prophecy that the prophets are often pivoting off of. And what Deuteronomy 32 is, is it's a song. It's a prophetic song that the Lord taught to Moses at the very end of his life. And it's sort of a prophetic overview of how the Lord views the Jewish people, and he actually, and I say the Jewish people, I mean Israel, and um, and it it begins with their history, and it ends with their ultimate destiny. It's very similar in a lot of ways to Ezekiel sixteen. If you're familiar with Ezekiel sixteen, it's this profoundly moving uh, prophecy. It's the prophecy where the Lord says, "You know, I found you laying on the side of the road, squirming in your blood." Like your mother abandoned you. She didn't wash you. No, like you were just discarded like a piece of trash. And I put my robe over you. I took care of you. I, I, I gave you everything. I gave you everything. And you grew up and you were, you know, healthy and beautiful and blessed. You had everything. But rather than appreciating all that I gave to you, you turned aside to every false idol to every false god, you know, and it's pretty graphic. It's like, you know, you you laid with everyone under every tree on every high hill. You forsook me, you rejected me. You know, it's it's this incredibly emotional passage, but then it ends despite it, it's an profound indictment of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, but despite all that, at the end the Lord says nevertheless Nevertheless, despite all these things, I'll remember my covenant. I'll remember the promises that I made to you. And in the end, 
the Lord is basically saying, I will, I will impart faithfulness into you and you will be faithful and I will be your God and you will be my people and this type of thing. So Deuteronomy 32 is very, very similar. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to just skip through a few uh, very relevant portions, but it starts out in verse one. Now, again, <clears throat> the Lord teaches this to Moses and he tells Moses to sing it to all of Israel at the very end of his life. Like these are some of the last words of Moses. And as I said, it's it's an indictment and it's presented almost like a legal case. So it begins in verse one. He says, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching or let my instruction, what I'm about to convey, he says, let it fall like the rain. Let my speech settle. Let my words settle like dew on the grass as showers on the, on the herbs. <clears throat> so it begins with the language of a trial where the Lord basically says, and, and you see this multiple times later. You see it in the beginning of Isaiah where he reflects this language. But it's like the Lord is saying, right now, I call the heavens and the earth and everything in them as my witness. I call heaven and earth to the witness stand against Israel on my behalf. Like it's a, it's a really, again, incredibly poetic, emotionally profound um, statement. And then Isaiah, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Moses says, I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. All of his ways are perfect. Everything that he does is just. He is a God of faithfulness without any injustice whatsoever. And then he begins the indictment. He says, but they have acted corruptly toward him. You know, he called them to be his children. He called them to be his bride. He says, but they're not his children. They're not his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Now, when it says generation here, it's actually a kind of a technical term. It doesn't mean this 40 year um, period, you know, the, you know, Gen, Gen Z or Gen X or the millennial generation or uh, the baby boomers, this type of thing. It's speaking of the particular spirit. And so, this term here, by the way, this is the foundation to understand the statement later in Jesus's sermon on the end times, the Olivet Discourse, where he says this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. And Christians endlessly debate what that means. And some take it to mean, well, it must be this particular generation. And thus everything was all fulfilled back in 70 AD. Others take it to mean, oh, you know, it must be 40 years after 1948, and thus you had all these people expecting Jesus to return in the 80s. It's not talking about a window of time. It's speaking of, and it's more than just race. You know, it's not just the race of Israel. It's those that have this particular spirit of rebellion within Israel. And it's a, a weird, weird word that we don't really even necessarily have in English. And it's often translated as generation, um, but it's it's more technical word than that. So the Lord says, are you repaying the Lord as if you're paying him back, as if he's done some injustice to you? He says, you foolish and unwise people. Is he not your father who bought you? Is he not the one who created you? He established you. 
And so he's calling on Israel to recognize their sin. Again, he goes through all of the um, the ways that he blessed Israel. I cared for you. I carried you on eagles' wings. You know, like throughout the Old Testament, he's the Lord is saying, "Remember, don't forget all of the things that I did when I delivered you out of Egypt." And here he says, "You know, the Lord encircled them. He cared for them. He guarded them." as the pupil of his eye, like he found you out in the desert, in a wasteland. But I led you like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, that cares for its babies. He spread his wings over them. He caught them. He carried them on his pinions, like the the scene out of uh, Lord of the Rings. And then it says in verse 15, the indictment begins. It says, but Jeshurun, which is a pet name for Israel. It means my upright ones. He says, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. He bucked. And the expression here, you have grown fat, thick, and sleek, is in ancient times, you didn't generally get fat unless you were really wealthy. And most of the wealthy became wealthy by exploiting the poor and the vulnerable. So the idea here is not an indictment of being overweight. The idea is you became a fat cat. You became lazy. You became indulgent. And you rejected, you rejected me. And he says, they made him jealous with strange gods. Now, this is the this is the pivotal point here. The Lord says, you made me jealous. You broke my heart. Like oftentimes when it says our God is a jealous God, you'll hear people try to defend God. Well, it doesn't really mean jealousy here in the sense that, you know, a human is um, emotionally weak or vulnerable. You know, God's not jealous like a human. And because jealousy is viewed as a, uh, you know, a weakness, nobody likes an insecure, you know, someone who's jealous all the time. But the Lord uses jealousy in the sense of a jealous husband to convey and to communicate his broken heart. Like, I actually don't think we should try to explain this away. I think the Lord, now again, God is far transcendent and bigger than just some insecure, you know, boyfriend or spouse or this type of thing. But he uses this term to convey the emotion and the passion and the woundedness, the genuine pain that our rebellion, and in this case, Israel's rebellion caused in his heart. He goes, they made me jealous. And of course, the, the original primordial rebellion, uh, if you will, even beyond the fall in the garden, was the golden calf incident, the golden calf catastrophe. In the middle of the, the covenant ceremony, in the middle of the betrothal ceremony, God is on the mountain in blazing fire, like a consuming fire, on the mountain, Moses is up in the fire, and in the middle of the covenant, they decide, hey, let's worship this cow. Let's worship this cow god. And then to add insult and injury to injury, they say, behold, Israel, this is your God that led you up out of Egypt. You know, so the Lord says they made him jealous with foreign or strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They actually sacrificed, they gave their best, their tithes to demons. They took the cream of their crop, they took the best of their fruit, and they didn't give it to me, they gave it to demons 
who were not even gods, new gods who came lately, who their fathers didn't dread, they didn't know. You neglected the rock who gave birth to you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And so the Lord saw all of this, and he, in turn, justly spurned them because of the provocation. So the Lord says, they provoked me. They provoked me. And therefore, the Lord said, I will hide my face from them, and I will see what their end shall be. I will see what their ultimate destiny will be. I'll see what I'll see what all of their rebellion and rejection of me leads to. What's the end of this? Where is this going? I'll see what their end shall be. Again, he says, because they are a perverse generation. There's that term again. Sons and daughters in whom there is no faithfulness. Then he says, they have made me jealous with that which is not a god. You know, they worship gods that were not even gods. They provoked me not only to jealousy, but to anger with their idolatry. And then the Lord says, therefore, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to provoke them back. I'm going to make them jealous. I'm going to make them angry with a people who are not a people. So through the lips and through the words and the actions of a people who aren't even a people yet, I'm going to provoke them to anger and jealousy. He says, I will provoke them to anger through the lips of a foolish people. So this is the Old Testament foundational prophecy that Paul the Apostle is later expounding upon when he says that we as Gentiles are called to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, Again, most Christians are very familiar with, or to, familiar to some degree with the New Testament. So they're familiar with Paul, but they're often not familiar with this text. And so oftentimes it's taught and it's believed that this provocation that Gentiles are called to engage in, it's positive. Like if we just wear as Gentiles, we we dress up like we think we're Jews. You know, if we just wear a kippah, and wear some, you know, a talit and blow a shofar and sing some Hebrew songs, um, dance around, you know, go to Israel and that all the Jews are going to go, oh, look at them. Look at them. Isn't this wonderful? I want to be a Christian. You know, they're blowing shofars and singing Hebrew music. And and I, I want to be careful. I'm not making fun of that. You know, like, look, it's it's OK to fall in love with aspects of. Jewish culture, and even to identify with these things as kind of an identificational intercession and so on and so forth. Some of it can be silly. But the point is, and again, yes, of course, we're called to love Israel and on and on and on to become culturally sensitive. But the point is this, the text, when Paul says that they're going to provoke Israel to jealousy, it's intended to be understood as a negative provocation. It's intended to say, you guys, your job is that your very existence, your message, it's going to really upset them to the point that it's going to stir something in them to start asking the deep questions and to confront realities in the inside themselves. And the Lord goes, you know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to do it because you guys are foolish. You guys are ignorant. 
And I'm going to use people who are specifically ignorant and foolish. And that's what I'm going to use to upset and provoke and poke my people. You go, wow, like I never thought of it that way. Like the Lord actually says right out, if you're a Gentile, he calls us (laughs) foolish people, which from my perspective is incredibly appropriate. I go like, here I am, you know, I'm 50, I'm in my fifties now, you know, 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago, I was just this, you know, which just yesterday, I was just this stupid pothead, you know, living in my divorced mother's basement with zero interest in God, you know, just selling weed and, you know, like, and the Lord just interjects in my life, brings in some crises, you know, makes me very uncomfortable and opens my eyes in a really sudden and powerful way. And now here we are 30 years later and the Lord is called, you know, he's using me to be a voice to speak into things that are so deep and profound. And I go, but I haven't forgot who I am when you found me, Lord. I'm still the stupid idiot, former pothead that deserves to be in jail or in hell. You know, like that, that is absolutely like, I am the foolish person. We all are that you called and chose to provoke your people. This is a very specific, um, there's a very specific plan in place here that we're part of and that we need to be aware of the way that he intended it to work. We think we're so smart. (laughs) We think we're so powerful. And the reality is God goes, actually, I chose you specifically because you guys are so dumb and so foolish. And so the story that I like to use to demonstrate this is about five years ago, I was coming home from Saudi Arabia. I just been in Saudi Arabia for the first time and absolutely fully convinced that I just saw with my eyeballs for a few days and that I hiked the real Mount Sinai. I know that's controversial uh, topic and don't let that distract you if you disagree, but I was full, fully convinced that this is the real Mount Sinai and I'm looking at the pictures and I'm just, I'm on the plane, I'm coming home and I'm just, I'm glowing. Like I can't believe what I've just experienced the past few days. And I get on the plane, I was in Amsterdam and I heard this loud voice, this guy talking Um, it's rare that I hear a voice that's louder and more, um, obnoxious than mine, but I heard this guy's voice and I go, clearly I can tell right away, New York Jew. I can tell he's a New York Jew. And, um, sure enough, he sits right next to me and we're going to be sitting next to each other for, you know, the next, uh, nine hours. And as soon as I sit down, he starts talking, which, you know, nowadays people don't talk as much on planes as they used to. And, um, and part of me was exhausted, but, uh, you know, and I, I don't always like to talk as much as I used to, but he starts talking and he goes, where are you coming from? You know, and you, you just, you just go through Zurich. And I was like, uh, no, I, you know, just come from Saudi Arabia. He goes, oh, well, what were you doing there? You know, so he's, he's giving me a soft serve and I'm like, um, and I'm literally, as he's asking me this, I'm just looking at the pictures on my phone going, Mount Sinai, like, I can't believe this. And I looked at him, I said, like, really like thinking, hey, we're gonna have a good connection here. I'm like, believe it or not. And this might sound crazy to you. I said, but I actually believe that I was just hiking at the real Mount Sinai. You know, I'm so excited. And he goes, oh, give me a break. He goes, come on, 
you know, none of that stuff's true. And, you know, I was shocked. I expected him to go, oh, wow, cool. Tell me about it. And he goes, you, none of that stuff's true. And I, I go, well, wait a minute. Are you observant? And he wasn't dressed, you know, like Orthodox or anything. But again, I could just tell he was a Jew from New York. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, like he goes, look, I'm conservative. I go to congregation. I go to synagogue. He goes, but he goes, look, the Bible, the lessons are in, are true. They're from God. He goes, but the the story, the Exodus, he goes, that's a myth. It never happened. He goes, German higher critical scholarship has disproven all of this myth a lot, this mythology a long time ago. And, you know, I don't pull out the card like I'm the author of, you know, eight books and I've written an entire book and, you know, I've written a book detailing the long, you know, I don't pull any of that out, but I'm just looking at him. I'm like German higher critical scholarship. I said, do you realize that German higher critical scholarship was specifically, it is unarguably, it was an anti-Semitic um, academic project designed to de-Judaize the Bible. Like it's one of the worst anti-Semitic uh, endeavors in academia in the past hundred years. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And he goes, you don't know what you're talking about, you know? And I mean, I didn't express it to him like that, but I was just like German higher critical scholarship. I was like, this is, that's like anti-Semitism. Like you might as well just be quoting Hitler. Um, and he goes, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm thinking to myself like, bro, this is like Wikipedia level stuff. Like Google it, you know, like this isn't even, you don't know what you're talking about. And he's getting upset. And I finally turned to him and I said, listen, I said, you're the Jew here. I'm the Gentile. You're supposed to be convincing me that your story is true, not the other way around. And, uh, and, you know, again, I don't know. I mean, I hope I said it gently, but he just flipped out and started yelling. I mean, it was like, you know, like we're going to get kicked off the plane. I'm sitting right next to him. And I just said, all right, hey, sorry, you know, just agree to disagree here, buddy. But think about this. And I'm and I'm sitting there on the plane and I'm going, look at this. Deuteronomy 32, the prophecy of Moses being fulfilled right in front of my eyes through the lips of a foolish person. I'm just telling him, you are called to be a light to the Gentiles. Your story is true. And that alone provoked him to anger to the point where he's yelling at me. And I was like, you know, kind of laughing, going, this is, it's being fulfilled, but Lord, I'm the foolish, I'm the foolish person in this story. Like it's hard not to be a little insulted, but I'm like, but I can't argue with it on the other hand. So here's the thing is, you know, when we talk about Israel, when we pray for Israel, we're crying out, we're saying, Lord, touch the Orthodox, touch the secular, touch the youth, touch the military, you know, like protect all of these things. We give ourselves in our heart and we say, Lord, give us your heart for your people. There's also this incredibly nuanced, you know, on one hand, but on the other hand, there's this nuanced reality that Paul says, he goes, guys, remember, and don't forget for one second, they're enemies for this. As it relates to the gospel, they are enemies. And he goes, but let's be clear. They're beloved. 
on account of the covenants. What does he, what does he mean on account of the covenants? God goes, because of what he has determined in his plans, in his heart, that when all is said and done, he is not going to forget the promises, the covenant that he made to them. He goes, I'm going to impart my spirit in them. I'm going to give them my heart. I'm going to give them my words. I'm going to put my words on their lips and put my spirit in them, and they will be mine. He goes, because of the Lord's faithfulness, they're beloved, even if they are presently enemies. And so there's a there's another very foundational aspect of Torah when the Lord makes covenant with Israel, and it, it shows up a lot throughout the narrative. And he goes, when you guys go into the land, don't mix. Don't enter into covenants, marriages with the people in the land. Don't enter into agreement with, to use the New Testament sort of expression, with Satan. You know, and this is actually what Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 6 when he's trying to tell people like, hey guys, <laughs> I, know the, um, I know the dating field is really limited. But don't marry unbelievers. Don't do it. And, you know, it's not like the Lord is saying, like, because you're so superior and they're so horrible. But there's there's something really precious there where the Lord goes, guys, like, don't you know who you are? You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Why would you want to mix the temple of the Holy Spirit with a temple of idols? Why would you mix like, literally, why would you mix that which is for God with that which is for Satan? Don't, he goes, when you enter into the land, don't mix. Because if you do, it will be a snare under your feet. It will kill you. It will lead you away. You will worship other gods. And so you have this, this commandment. Don't mix with them. Be holy. Be separate. Be pure. Be set apart for the Lord, right? So we know that, you know, when we talk Islam or witchcraft or Hinduism, we go, yeah, we should not mix our faith with Islam. We should not mix our faith with Hinduism. But the reality is, as so many Christians fall in love with and seek to love the Jewish people, they oftentimes embrace huge uh, elements of rabbinic Judaism. And it's a it's a kind of a natural thing, but the reality is rabbinic Judaism is not biblical faith. Yes, there are aspects of it that certainly maintain and preserve and reflect biblical faith. But but the scriptures are very, very clear. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. In 1 John 2:22. John, the apostle says, anyone who rejects the son does not have the father. No one who rejects the son has the father. And this is a painful, really painful, difficult reality when it comes to our wanting to reach the Jewish people. The exclusivity of the gospel, like think about this, simply telling a guy on a plane that you're called to be a light to the Gentiles. You're called to speak the truth concerning your book and your story. That alone provoked him to yell at me and erupt in anger to where we had to stop the conversation. Now think about how much it would have provoked him if I pushed in and said, Jesus is the only way that Yeshua 
is the Messiah and you are wrong. And apart from him, you are cut off. Like that's a hard reality for any one of us to face emotionally. I think about the last days. I think about the storms that are coming. I look out right now and I go, we're already hemorrhaging believers left and right. We're losing people. They're abandoning the faith. Like statistically, we're not winning right now. And I go, and the storm hasn't even started. You know, and one of the things that, you know, people fall away for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes they fall into sin. They slowly backslide. Then they try to justify their actions with their theology and you know what I'm saying? No one wants to be a hypocrite, so they have to make up reasons why they don't believe in God. This type of thing, I get that. But then there's those who claim to have a crisis of faith. And, you know, the exclusivity of the gospel is a, is a really hard, hard thing. I um, was reading this, uh, this little book years ago. It's Jewish stories um, of uh, mystic joy. And um, it's a beautiful little book written by this sort of uh, orthodox Jewish hippie guy. I say hippie, you know, but um, he tells this story of this guy named Jacob, who during the Holocaust, he was, uh, you know, maybe 1920. And as they were bringing him and his whole family into the into the camp, they were separating the weak from the strong and the weak. It was, you know, like they knew they were going away to their death. And when they got there, they separated his parents who were a little older and frail. And they took both of his parents. And then he was already like just devastated. And he was holding his siblings that were younger. But then they took the, his siblings and they dragged them away with the parents because they were uh, too young. And he watched as he was the only one of his family that was not put in the the line for execution and they put him in the other line and, you know, it was his siblings, his parents crushed him, but it was his siblings, his young uh, siblings. I mean, and so he knows his whole family is going away to the slaughter and then they shave their bodies and they make them dunk in a pool of lye. It's a pool that burns, but it's to supposedly get rid of lice and everyone would jump in the pool. And as soon as they jump in, they would start screaming because it burns. And they would jump out. And he jumped in and he just stood there in the pool. And he raises his hands to heaven. And they're screaming at him, Jacob, get out of the pool. And he just raises his hands to heaven like, you know, a charismatic Christian, like some something that we, uh, a posture that we can all relate to. And he just starts worshiping God. And he says, naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And they're, you know, they're, they're ripping him out of the pool. And I look at stories like that. You know, I, I read stories like that. And it challenges the core of my faith. Like, if I can be honest, and I think it should challenge, I go, okay, so my faith says this guy does not know God, but I do. I go, this is one of the most profound expressions of worship imaginable. Like, in the moment of absolute devastation, this guy chooses to raise his hands to heaven and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And yet the scriptures are clear that he does not, he rejects the son and he does not have the father. This is, this is what we're called to, 
to confront the exclusivity of the gospel is a very difficult, emotionally challenging reality. So I was, um, I spoke at a synagogue, a messianic synagogue in Houston uh, about last year. And uh, they asked, they asked me if I would um, just have dinner with this guy they wanted me to meet. And I just thought he was just one of the elders. I, I wasn't listening or paying attention. So I sat down and we had dinner and I thought he was a believer. But he wasn't a believer. He was Jewish, and he went to the synagogue, and he had been going for years, but he was not a believer. And I didn't even realize that, but his, he was married to a Messianic Jew. His, his wife was a believer. He married a Catholic woman, and then she converted to, uh, she became, she started going to a Messianic synagogue, okay? So he was Jewish, and so he'd been going there for like 15 years. And he goes, I like it, you know, because they have a pretty good they fall, you know, the Sador, he goes, you know, I enjoy it, but I don't believe in Jesus. Now, he didn't say this until like the end of the dinner. And I was like, oh, like, sorry, like I wasn't paying attention. I, I, I didn't know, you know, like I was just talking like he was a believer. And then he goes, let me ask you this question. What do you believe? Where are all of my loved ones that died in the Holocaust and, and that died in unbelief? What do you think? And that's really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? You're standing there. You've just developed this sweet connection, this friendship with someone. And they express their faith. They express how important their faith is to them. And then, and their family and the pain and the history that they've gone through. And he says, where do you believe my departed loved ones are? And I was just like, Lord, everything in me wants to go, well, you know, I'm not God. I don't know. You know, I'm not the judge. You know, like everything in you wants to go, maybe, maybe when they were in that state in between, when they passed out, the Lord spoke to them. You know, like you just, you want to give everything and go, I don't know. But I just said, look. I said, first of all, my reading of the scriptures, I said, there's a lot of debate in, in the community. You know, some people believe in eternal conscious torment in hell. Others believe in annihilationism, that those that are wicked just burn out like a match. Some people believe something in between the two. I said, my reading of the scriptures is that, yes, it does use the language of ongoing Torment, I said, but emotionally, I can't even wrap my head around that. I said, I'll be honest with you. I hate, I hate the doctrine of hell. I hate it. I said, but my reading of the scriptures, that's what it says. And then I said, and the scriptures are also clear that if you, and you know, again, it wasn't if you reject my Jesus, it was the scriptures are clear that if you don't have the faith of Abraham, your father, if you reject your Messiah, if you reject the Lord's provision for your sin, then you're cut off. And I said, you know, if they were not believers, and, and now to be clear, I was crying as I was saying this, but I just said, I have to say it. Like, I have to, he might just get up and storm off. Like, I don't know where this is going to go. 
And I said that, and he he looked at me and he said, you know, I've been going to this synagogue for 15 years and I've asked a lot of people that question. He said, you're the first person that ever said what you just said. You're the first person that I've asked that said that apart from Messiah, they are cut off. And he goes, I know that's what you guys believe, but no one ever has the courage to say it to me. And I was just kind of stunned at that little exchange. But uh, so about uh, six months later, they texted and said that he got baptized. I'm not saying it had anything to do with that. I'm not saying it had anything to do with that. But the point is this, what the Lord is calling us to. We're coming to these Jews with this attitude of like, you guys are so ignorant. Like, you don't even know your scriptures. We're the Christians. We know Jesus. We have it all figured out. And there is truth to that. The Lord has opened our blind eyes. You know, he's, we who were once far off, we've been brought near. There is truth to that. But the reality is we also as a people are profoundly ignorant profoundly ignorant concerning the long history of the mistreatment of the Jewish people. You know, like we come thinking, you know, we use the term mansplaining, you know, we should call it Gentile splaining. You know, we come as Gentiles, like, let me explain the truth of the Bible to you. And, and again, I want to be clear. We have revelation. We have understanding, but they're like, their guards are up. You know, their their protection is up because they're they're very educated. They're very well aware. Their identity, they know that we tried to kill many of them or many of us tried to kill them. You go, well, if they did that, they weren't real Christians. No, trust me, throughout the history of the church, highly respected fathers of the church, leaders, theologians, articulated things that were satanic and evil and instigated violence against the Jewish people. And so, you know, this, when I say it's so nuanced, like we, as Christians, we want this, these clear instructions. We want this, we always want this like easy path, you know, like just take a pill and you can lose weight. And, you know, everyone will say, no, if you want to lose weight, you have to torture yourself. You know, you have to starve, you have to exercise, whatever. And it's like, if we want to win the Jewish people, there's no like, well, let me explain a simple, you know, four scripture path that if you share this with them, here's the easy, here's the easy. No, we have to be willing to enter into such a profound place of pain and, and, and humiliation and confrontation and conflict. And in the days ahead, just, you know, even just sharing the gospel, like I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg, forget when the whole world completely goes insane and goes crazy and they're they already are but you know it says all the nations will gather together against jerusalem to kill jews and that's really what it boils down to when you know i was just at yad vashem two weeks ago the holocaust museum in jerusalem I always, I take some time. I, I go to the, there's like a little cabinet there with the displays of some of the righteous Gentiles. These were Gentiles that risked everything. They risked their families. 
their safety, they risk their kids in order to do the right thing, in order to save Jewish lives. And we always, we look at that and we go, Lord, if I ever have this opportunity, I'll also be a hero. I'll do the right thing. I'll be like Corey Ten Boom and the Ten Boom family or any of these. But the reality is it's much easier said than done. Because for every one of these people that did these things, they had a spouse, a husband going, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? You're going to put our kids and our family at risk for them. We don't even know them. You know, like that type. Those are the very real world dynamics that took place that you don't see on display at Yad Vashem. You just see people memorialized and lionized and, and so forth. But the reality is painful, hard, messy life unfolded behind all of these stories. And we have no idea. Like, we have no clue. We have not grasped the magnitude of what we're called to do, what we're about to face. And so, sorry for coming on and depressing everyone. um, But this is just what's on my heart. It's like the reality. Loving, Loving anyone is hard loving people that have been preconditioned that we have preconditioned i say that as a people to have their their guards up to have their walls of protection up that's triply difficult and we are incredibly in, incapable of doing it ourselves and the only way that any of it's going to happen even just a little bit is if the lord steps in and does it And that's ultimately what it boils down to. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to embrace the hard, the hard parts of it, the hard aspects of it and the hard aspects of the message that we carry, the exclusivity of the gospel, you know, on and on and on.